Hi, I'm Marcus Dip Silas. And I'm Jaffif Chu. And you're listening to the Dip Chu Podcast. On the Dip Chu Podcast, we host honest conversations about faith and church. We also speak to guests from around the world and explore what it means to follow Jesus. We're excited to be on this journey of listening and learning. And we hope that you are too. Thanks for tuning in today. On this week's episode, we speak with Dr. Dion Foster, a South African public theologian and an ordained Methodist minister. Dion is an associate professor in systematic theology and ethics. He serves as the chair of the Systematic Theology and Ecclesiology Department at the University of Stellenbosch in Cape Town, South Africa. He's also the director of the Bayer's Naudia Center for Public Theology. Dion is a prolific writer and researcher on the South African church, ethics, social justice, and Christian identity. Our conversation with Dion was recorded in February of this year. We've changed the format of our podcast in order to give you the most out of what Dion had to say. Our reflection on this episode will be posted in next week's conversation instead. For more information on Dr. Dion Foster and to find out more about his work and listen to his podcast, please visit the show notes page for this episode. And now, on to our conversation with Dion. Hi, good morning. Yeah, it's lovely to be with you. It's it's uh, four p.m. in in Malaysia. Yes, it is. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, we're so glad to to have you here with us, Dion. And um, also, I love the pictures you sent me this morning of your morning run. Yeah, I must say, uh, Marcus, I, I'm I am blessed to live in perhaps one of the most beautiful places on earth. Cape Town is stunning, you know. Where I live in Cape Town, uh, we have the mountains on the one side mm-hmm. and, and the ocean mm-hmm. on the other. So it really is, it's a very, very beautiful place to to go for a cycle or a run, you know. And of course, our, our weather is a little milder than than what you have in, in Malaysia. Yeah. So it, it's just it's just that little more comfortable. It's fresh and lovely, you know. On my wife Megan's list, when, whenever I ask her, where else could you live in the world mm-hmm. uh, other than Cape Town? She always says KL. Awesome. Yeah. So she would love to live in Malaysia. And and Malaysia is is the is the country that I think I visited most uh, other than 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 home. Jeefith and I were just talking because um I've we've never met. Right, I've never met you. I can't remember exactly how I added you on Facebook, but I did, and I remember that there was a time where you were quite well known among our circles, the the prayer network circle. And I'm trying to remember what the connection was. Can you refresh my memory of um your your time in Malaysia? So it could be that that we got to know one another through the Global Day of Prayer, and yes. and possibly Alvin Tan. Um, mm. Alvin is a, is a wonderful friend, but but um, the the Evangelical Christian Network were were wonderful partners um, with Global Day of Prayer and with mm. Unashamedly Ethical. And um, so I visited I visited you know uh, KL certainly a number of times um, for uh, for Global Day of Prayer. 
And then later on, um, I, I was serving on the board of, of Alpha. So we, we visited uh, Malaysia a number of times, uh, you know, to, to do some Alpha work. And then I, I also taught at STM, the seminary, and got to know Seven Kit. Seven is probably one of my closest friends. And wow. uh, so wow. I have this very deep connection to, uh, to Malaysia, yeah. You mentioned that you've been in Malaysia um, multiple times. <laughs> Yeah, so would you tell us a bit about your connection with Malaysia and um, with the prayer movement here? Yeah, so the very first time that I went to Malaysia, I think it was in 2008, I was invited by Bishop Hua Yung, who was the presiding bishop of the Methodist Church in Malaysia. Mm. They were quite involved in, in a movement called the Global Day of Prayer. Now, what's interesting about this particular movement, I used to be a minister of a congregation, a pastor of a church. And a very prominent businessman in, in South Africa, a guy called Graham Power, he owns the largest sort of civil engineering privately owned company in South Africa. So they build, you know, highways and shopping centers and housing complexes. He came to faith in our church. We were running an alpha wow. course. His kids first came and they invited their dad, Graham, mm. and, and his wife to come to the next adult alpha and during that period, Graham came to faith. So the Global Day of Prayer, I mean, this, this for me is God's sense of humor, you know. God births this global prayer movement, probably the largest prayer movement in history, out of a Methodist church. I mean, can you imagine wow. that? And it's birthed by a businessman, a civil engineer, uh, from the southern tip of Africa. This is quite remarkable. But the Global Day of Prayer spread throughout Africa and then eventually throughout the world. And one of the places where, where we really had a, a wonderful, wonderful um, set of partnerships and relationships was Malaysia. So mm. I was actually invited uh, by Bishop Hua Jung, because I'm a Methodist, to come and speak at their prayer convention in, in 2008. And, and that began, you know, one of the, the most beautiful uh, parts of my life since. I mean, I visited Malaysia. Mm. I, I would have to go back and count, but maybe... 20 or more times and and been, you know, all over uh, Malaysia. Mm. So we want to kind of introduce you a little bit to people who are listening. Um, so I have your Wikipedia page pulled out. I, I sent Japheth your Wikipedia page and he was like, we're having someone with a Wikipedia page on the podcast. <laughs> I, I think that, I think that Wikipedia page is a, is a very eager student who wanted a good good grade really oh gosh <laughs> that's funny <laughs> created you know it creates yeah, this yeah. wikipedia page i'm really a nobody but uh, anyway okay so you are an ordained minister with the methodist church of south africa that's great you are also a theologian and you teach at um stellenbosch university right that's correct yeah yeah, yeah. And um, you have also presented lectures, I see, in uh, at Oxford and Cambridge. So it's it's so interesting because because I think you are basically like an academic, right? But at the same time, you are also very much involved with with practice. You know, sometimes we see that disconnect of people who do theology mm. and people who practice, and there's the expert religion and that folk religion thing going on, right? And yeah, so you have. Uh, you have two PhDs, um, one in... Uh, no one should have two PhDs, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> that, that already is a sign that something is wrong with a person. <laughs> My very first degree when I left school, uh, left high school and, and um, went to go and study, um, I, I felt such a strong calling to, to ministry 
Mm. And um, my dad said, my, neither of my parents were Christian. So my dad said, no way, you know, get mm. a real job. Those were his words. My very first degree that I was registered for was, was a Bachelor of, of, of Science degree. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I knew that I was going to go into the ministry. But, but something about the sort of scientific method and, and the scientific approach Mm-hmm. Um, you know, found found a hold in me. So my first PhD was in cognitive neuroscience and identity, and I was particularly interested in how we develop identity as human persons. How do we answer the question "I am Dion"? I mean, what is it mm-hmm. that makes up the the I amness and the Dionness of who I am? And it's actually a very, very deeply theological issue, you know, because the God who created us, uh, created us in, in God's image. And that God is, certainly those of us who are Christian believe that God is Trinity. So relationship is so central to identity. And, and that's really what that study sort of mm. showed, is that the, the sort of egghead way of putting it was that we dealt with ontological aspect of, of intersubjectivity. The better way to say it is we were really thinking about the ways in which our social relationships, the relationships with people who we love and care for, but also just our communities, how they shape our identity. That was sort of the background in that. And I used a, a, a particular African theological concept of, of dealing with that. You or some of your listeners may have heard of the notion of Ubuntu, sort of ethical concept that a person is a person through other persons. I use that as a sort of uh, conversation partner. I'm hoping that this this conversation with you uh, today, at least, is more of an introductory one and that we would be able to have you back in the future to, to talk about all unpack all the other things Marcus and, and Jeff just to say thanks so much for, for asking me to come and, mm. and spend a bit of time with you I, I really am grateful and I, I'm looking forward to, to the conversation I can maybe just add um, the point that you made earlier about being a, a theologian who's deeply committed to to the church and the kingdom of God that really is how I see myself. I see my teaching and research as, as an aspect of my calling and, and really see myself as someone who's trying to, to work out what does it mean for us as Christians to be authentic and faithful, responsible to, to what God is doing in the world. So, so a lot of what I've done in my research just tends to, to say, how do we find ways to be more faithful to, to God in Christ? involved with an ethics movement uh, called mm. Unashamedly Ethical. Mm. And we spoke at a conference and, and there was a dinner and, and someone prayed a prayer at that dinner, which perhaps wasn't that responsible. And, and so the police came to ask, who are these guys from South Africa and mm. what are they doing here? You know, For a few years, uh, I had a, a rather tough time. At first, we couldn't leave the country mm-hmm. because they wanted to do an, a, a, a you know, an investigation of what was going on. After that, every time I would come back to Malaysia, it would be under quite strict scrutiny, you know. What are you coming to do? Who will you be seeing? And it, 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 in some senses, it reminded me of, of my, my early ministry here in yeah. South Africa. I mean, I became a Methodist minister in South Africa when, when we were still living under that very, very oppressive period of, of racial apartheid. I was sent to serve in a black church, which at that stage was against the law. It reminded me a lot of that kind of scrutiny by the security police, being stopped and questioned. And I, you know, it was a very important thing for me, that that trip to Malaysia and, mm. and what happened after that, because 
I had to say to myself, you know, what am I doing? Is is what I'm doing gospel work? Mm. Um, is is this the work of of the kingdom of God? And and mm. and make sure you stay focused and you're on track with that. The church that I belong to, the Methodist Church of Southern Africa, is is a predominantly Black African uh, denomination in yeah. South Africa. Um, so just a bit of the demographics of South Africa. I mean, South Africa is a predominantly black African country. White South Africans make up about somewhere between three and five percent of the population. But because of colonialism, Dutch and then the British, we have this incredibly painful history of white supremacy uh, and black subjugation. But our church, the Methodist Church of Southern Africa, was a very progressive church. The founder of the Methodist church was a guy called John Wesley. He was a remarkable guy. I mean, he was he was deeply evangelical, like I think <laughs> I am. So he really believed in, in the importance of being in a relationship with God in Christ and, and how that changes everything about us. It changes not only our, our spirits, but it changes our political lives, our economic lives, our social <laughs> lives. And so he he used this phrase um, that there can be no personal holiness without social holiness. It doesn't matter if you pray on a Sunday and you're in Bible study on a Wednesday, but you mistreat people around you. God God can see into that and can see mm. that that our hearts aren't right. So so social holiness became a very very important thing in in early Methodism. John Wesley was was the founder of the very first trade union. Uh, in the world and and worked on things like collective bargaining, but he was also one of the very first street preachers and mm -hmm. and persons who preached to massive open air crowds. I mean, we read in the late 1700s of him preaching and people falling in the spirit, praying in tongues. So mm -hmm. so it's this sort of tension between yeah. evangelicalism and and justice, which which became quite deeply entrenched. So. The Methodist Church of Southern Africa had that identity, a very evangelical church, which is why it grew, but also recognizing that we had to be salt and light in, in the society where we lived. In the late 1980s, early 1990s, I mean, that was one of the deepest times of apartheid in South mm. Africa. The, the white minority government was desperately trying to hold on to power, mm. and, and they were using increasing brutality to do that, to separate mm. Uh, white and black citizens. And our church said, well, if the state is not ready to model what a just, reconciled, transformed South African society should look like, then it's the responsibility of the church to do it. Mm -hmm. I mean, God's going to hold the church accountable to say, what did you do? What was your witness like? So one of the things the church could do was they said, well, we're not going to obey apartheid laws because they're unjust. Mm -hmm. We're not going to separate people. So they decided, okay, we'll send white ministers to serve in, in black communities, in black churches, and black ministers to serve in white communities to, yeah. to break down the sort of structural violence of, of racial separation. Yeah. But, of course, that was illegal at the time. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you, you weren't allowed to, to cross these boundaries without, you know, permission. So, you know, you could be arrested for doing something as simple as a funeral. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. The security police would be waiting and... Uh, you know, you come home from your Sunday service and uh, or you leave the church and, and there they are. They, they're trying to intimidate the community into, into a way of living. And that's been a sort of uh, character of, of my ministry ever since. Is I've, I've really, I mean, I work a lot on issues of justice 
issues related to race and reconciliation, economic transformation. And, you know, sometimes people say, Dion, are you an activist? Are you a political activist or an economic activist? Mm. And my answer is no. I'm just a Christian, you know. Mm. And my conviction is that, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is so radical. It is so powerfully transformative mm. that if we were to take it seriously, we would be far more radical than any political party. You know, we yeah. would transform the world by love. So that, that's a little bit of that story. Was it uh, uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu who said something about um, when the British came, we had the lands and they had religion? And- it was. Uh, he, the, 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 the quote is, when, when, when the settlers came, they had the Bible and we had the land. And they said, let us pray. And when we opened our eyes, we had the Bible and they, they had, had the land. Yeah. And, and for us, at least for, for Japheth and I, because we both went to Bible school in the U.S., very evangelical. Japheth went to the International House of Prayer University and I went to a Christian and Missionary Alliance school. There's this almost this thing where it's like the gospel is spiritual. There's this overemphasis on the spirituality of the gospel. And that was also how it was brought to us, how when colonial missions came, our ancestors were put under forced labor, enslavement, and then they were given the gospel at the same time. And we see this all over the world where colonizers would come and preach a gospel of freedom, but spiritual freedom while subjugating the bodies and the lives of the people in those lands. And so it's been a struggle for us at least to talk about Black Lives Matter with with our Christian friends who are predominantly white Christian friends. Because what you just said only exists in some people's minds as activism. It's not part of the gospel. And so to hear how you articulated it, I think it's it's so refreshing to me. Yeah, and just to say, Marcus, I think this is something interesting and I don't know what your experience is. And by the way, uh, Japheth, I, I've actually visited uh, IHOP and, I mean, just such an incredible uh, place of prayer and, and you know, mm. had wonderful experiences uh, there. But, mm. but just to say, one of the challenges that we do have is, is breaking down that, that dualism between faith and life, is the recognition that when we put God into a box to say, well, God operates only through the church, speaks only through the Bible, only operates in our set denomination or tradition. We make God quite small, you know, mm. whereas the God that I worship is the God of all creation. This is the God who, who desires to be seen as we read in, in Romans 1 verses 19 to, to 21. This is the God who is evidenced by the power of creation so that no one can deny it. And that comes through, you know, in science, it comes through in in political studies, you know, so concepts like justice and human rights, notions like dignity, this is all part of God's natural revelation. There are ways to live that are good and right and ways that, that are wrong. Of course, the scriptures are always our primary source. I mean, we, we read the Christian scriptures as the clearest, uh, most direct revelation of God and God's yeah. nature and God's person and God's will. But we have to recognize that, you know, when we read the scriptures, there are many things that are not dealt with, you know, that we we have to turn to scientists to. Coronavirus isn't mentioned in the Bible, but somehow we know God is doing something. The other thing I just want to say about your context and mine is it's been so encouraging to see Christians thinking about decolonizing Mm. our faith. They're thinking about what, what does it mean to become authentically 
Malaysian and Christian. Because let me tell you, the choice of the womb from which you came was not an accident. The scriptures tell us, you know, the the psalm says before even a a single day of your life came to be written, God had dreamt about you. So, So the fact that you are born in that beautiful place amongst those beautiful people with your particular history you know, that's something very deliberate. And, and we have to begin to think. A lot of the work that I do here in South Africa is thinking, what does it mean to be authentically African and Christian? And what is there? I mean, there's no doubt the missionary movements did bring many things for which we are grateful, but many things which mm. we recognize are sinful and broken and we need to deconstruct and dispense of. And that's the, the place where we need discernment to say, how do we how do we now take this potted plant which was brought to us and remove it from the pot and plant it in Malaysian soil or plant it in African soil yeah. so that it can flourish where it is? And so for, for listeners who are not able to see what we're seeing, um, you're white. <laughs> I'm white. <laughs> yeah. I never realized. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, a, a Afrikaans, Dutch his, uh, ancestry, like what is your... Um... Yes, yeah, so I have an interesting uh, personal history in that mm. um, I'm a first generation African. So I was born actually in Zimbabwe, not in mm. South Africa. And um, my mother was born in Ireland and my father was born in Scotland. Okay. So that, that sort of English uh, Celtic uh, heritage. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's another very, very interesting thing is, you know, in, in South Africa, certainly white South Africans tend to come either from the, the, the sort of earliest Dutch settlers, 1650s, or the mm-hmm. Huguenots who fled religious persecution mm-hmm. uh, into the 1700s. Uh, Many come from the 1820 British settlers who came in in the 1820s. And that's certainly Methodism finds its roots during during that period. And then, you know, later, because South Africa was first, you know, uh, uh, part of the Commonwealth, the British Commonwealth, um, you find many persons were were coming in the sort of early to mid 1900s, particularly after the Second World War, when there was no work. In, in, in Britain and in Europe, um, you know, many persons from Scotland, Ireland, uh, England, Wales came to, to Southern Africa mm. um, like they did going to Australia and Canada and other places in the Commonwealth mm. to find a better life. But, but there's this sort of mix of injustice in that. The fact that my grandparents could move from the United Kingdom to what mm. was then Rhodesia and just mm-hmm. access land to begin mm-hmm. farming. I mean, the, the people who had lived on this land for centuries and centuries and centuries were just displaced so that, that white so-called Christian farmers could come and do their thing. So mm-hmm. part of our, our work is also figuring out how do, we, how do we allow justice to take place? Because mm-hmm. this is the one thing I'm, I'm convinced of. Um, I'm, I'm what's known as, a, as an eschatological ethicist. So I'll break that down. The eschaton is, is the end times. It's, it's that moment in history. Um, it's, it's that time in history that we read about in Scripture when the fullness of God will be realized, when the reign of Jesus will reach its peak, when there will be, you know, we read in the book of Revelation, no more tears, no more dying, no more brokenness. 
Uh, in Isaiah, we read that the lion will lie down with the lamb. Our instruments of war will become instruments of production. It's a time of eternal shalom. Mm. Now, in the eschaton, I can guarantee you we will not have economic inequality. God won't mm. allow it. We won't have racism. Mm -hmm. um, we won't have, have sexism. So the question is, for us as Christians now, how do we position ourselves today so that we are living on the correct side of where history is going? Because if that inevitable uh, time is coming, we, we've got to work out how do I live today so that I'm on the right side of history when mm -hmm. the eschaton comes. So that's part of the work that I, I also spend a lot of time doing with churches is trying to figure out how do we companion our people towards God's ultimate justice. That's so good. Can you elaborate a bit more about that, about the social justice? Um, why is social justice needed in a 21st century Christian and what are we missing, you know, in this whole reconciliation and social justice debate? Yeah. So, Jeff, the, 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 the central claim, and this is, this is a, a, a sort of basic tenet, I think, of what it means to be Christian and to take theology seriously, is this, the very central claim that we make about our lives and about history and all of reality is that if we are truly Christian, we must be Christ-like. And we must conform our identity, that's what discipleship means, to become disciplined so that we sound like Jesus, we act like Jesus, we live like Jesus. And when we think about it, I mean, Jesus was absolutely radical when it came to, to questioning unjust economic systems, to questioning issues like you know, uh, gender-based violence, you know, the stoning of the woman caught in adultery. Here's this group of men, uh, possibly even one of them is the person who was caught with her saying, well, let's blame her, you know, victim shaming. Mm. Um, so so we, we read in the Gospels that Jesus was incredibly progressive when it came to issues of, of a just, humane, transformative society. So that's the first thing to say. We take our cue for justice from the nature and person of mm. God. God mm. is inherently a God of justice. Mm -hmm. and, and how do we know that? Well, the images that we discover throughout the scriptures are often the images of a household. Now, I don't know if you know this, the, the modern word, the contemporary word which we use for economics, actually comes from two words in the Bible, two Greek words. It comes from the Greek word oikos and the Greek word nomos, oikos nomos, is where we get economics from. Mm -hmm. And oikos means household. And nomos means to manage, to regulate, to structure the household. Economics is the study of how do we manage the resources of the household of God so that when our parent returns, when mm -hmm. our father looks upon the household, he doesn't look at us and say, how is it that some of you had too much when others didn't even have enough to survive? Mm -hmm. how, how is that possible? Um, how is it possible that some of you became fat off the land when others couldn't even access it in order to feed their children? Mm. So, so these are deeply, deeply theological questions uh, that, that we need to ask. And I think what's happened in much of contemporary Christianity, because we need to remember many of these things existed for, for centuries from the early church. Go and read yeah. Acts chapter mm. 2. Mm. I mean, the yeah. Acts 2 church gathers in community it has all of its possessions in common and it feeds the poor. I mean, and this was a very, very central part of the Christian identity for most of its life. 
What we've seen, however, is that in, in more recent years, maybe in the last two centuries, 200 years or so, we've had this very radical split um, between a, a type of evangelicalism that, that is world-denying. So it speaks about things like the evils of the flesh, the brokenness of a worldly desire. And, and that kind of theology is problematic because somehow it doesn't recognize that Jesus took on flesh. Jesus was incarnate in flesh. He sanctified the human body by becoming a human person. In the ascension, when Jesus ascends into the Godhead, he takes flesh and bone and skin and teeth and hair into the presence of God, atoms mm. into the, the presence of God. So there's the sense in which certain theologies, I think, have lost touch with what, what the biblical witness is and what the identity of Christianity was for many mm. centuries. And we've, we've, we've adopted a very narrow theology, mm. which is, it's not, it's not bad, but the consequences of it are problematic, which says, just confess Jesus with your lips, yeah. accept him in your mm. heart, and that's where it ends. And we have to say, no, that's not the end. That's just the beginning. And that also individualizes faith to the degree where you mentioned earlier that you're not holy just because of personal holiness, right? In fact, to begin with, um, it's not our holiness to begin <laughs> It's not what we are doing, right? It's it's the transitive nature of, of that righteousness that because of Jesus, we are righteous, mm. So to begin with our ideas that we can get holy in a certain way, we've already kind of veered off. And then to think that, well, if I don't look at pornography, if I uh, don't do things that hurt people from a very like, you know, I don't do it, right? But then we fail to see ourselves as also part of a system hmm. in a sense where, you know, when I look at how the history of colonial missions, you know, I'm a recipient of that, but part at the same time, I don't see myself as separate from that, right? Because these are spiritual fathers who, for, like you said, you know, they, they brought many things that we, we value, but also brought things that were not good, frankly. And, and um, it's the efficacy of the gospel that all three of us are sitting here today in spite and despite of right? The cultural baggage and, and the injustices that were done. But at the same time, I'm not separate from that because the global historic witness of Christ, the cloud of witnesses, right? That precedes me, that precedes Japheth, that precedes you. And so I feel like we're coming back to that Ubuntu kind of um, stance of, um, which for us is very familiar coming from collectivist cultures where we find meaning in group, yeah. of being part of a group. We find mm. You know, uh, uh, the, the association is what, you know, I'm the vine and you are the branches kind of picture, right? That, that life flows from being connected. Yeah. yeah and Marcus, just, just to come in on that, I mean, so this is a very, very crucial point. And, and Japheth, I think that's one of the things that has led to a sort of loss of the recognition of, of the importance of, of a focus on justice is that faith has become individualized. Mm. So we, we even think about the language that we use, you know, personal salvation. Yeah. Um, I mean, that, that, that's such a heretical concept. <laughs> you're you're going to get into the presence of God and say, ta-da, here I am. And, you know, the father's going to say, but where are all the rest? You know? mm -hmm. But we need to be careful that we don't yeah. overemphasize personal mm -hmm. salvation. Now, now think about this. This is, this is something very important from a theological perspective. 
I often have to help my students to understand God doesn't just have relationships as if this is God and relationships are something that that is an addition that that gets added to the person of God. God's very nature, who and how God is, is relationship. Think about Mm. this for a moment. If there were not Jesus, the son, there wouldn't need to be God, the father, God, the parent. There'd just be Mm. God, the God, you know, <laughs> but the very, the very fact that there is this, what in theology we call a perichoretic self-emptying relationship between the persons of the Trinity gives them their identity. Who Jesus is, sonship, is a creation of the relationship with the Father. Now, if that is true, and the scriptures are correct, that we are created in the image of God, in the image of God we were made, both male and female, then it means that the relationship that we have with the people around us, that's part of us growing in salvation. Now, mm. for those of us who, who are in the sort of Protestant tradition, and, and that's probably the three of us on this call, certainly, and, and many of our listeners, you know, we believe in justification. So, so the moment in which we accept the salvific efficacy of, of the death of Jesus on the cross, our sin is neutralized. But justification is just part of the story, what comes after justification is a life of, of growing in holiness, what, mm. what Paul calls in Romans sanctification. And that's, that's the part where I think we need to learn what does it mean to be truly holy? Mm. Now, John Wesley used to speak, first of all, about scriptural holiness. You've got to study the scriptures. You've got to know the character of God, the will of God. And that's a, that's a radical thing. Mm. That, that's the thing that caused me to say, I'll go to jail because I can see the system of apartheid is evil. So yeah. scriptural holiness. The second thing that he describes it as is, is he calls it perfect love. And that's also mm. deeply scriptural, the great commandment of Jesus. You know, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul. Jesus adds mind to the Shema and love all humankind as you love yourself. You know, This is the first and the greatest commandment. So perfect love, striving every day to figure out what does mm. it mean to live a life that is characterized by love. And that's a deeply political choice. It changes the structures in which we live. And this is a very, very important thing. I think as Christians, we need to recognize that we, we face both personal sin mm. and structural sin. So mm. Marcus, what you said earlier, absolutely. Uh, as a Christian, as a Christian man, I need to be very, very careful about what I fill my mind with. I, I shouldn't be looking at pornography, but that's only part of the thing. That's, that's mm. personal sin. I also need to recognize that the women and girls and men who are, are part of, of, of the pornographic industry are captured by a structural sin, yeah. a structural injustice yeah. that enslaves them in that. And it could be economic. It could be, you know, the pervasiveness of drugs. It could be mm. broken households, whatever it is. We need to mm. ask the question, what does perfect love mean? It's both personal mm and structural in nature. And I think that's a very important thing to hold on to. You talked about um, social holiness. Is this something that is, is related to that? Yeah, so this is actually a very interesting thing. So um, you can hear a lot of, of my Methodist roots are coming out. And just to say, <laughs> you know, friends, I'm constantly amazed that God still loves Methodists. <laughs> it's a remarkable thing. Um, and, and, and I must say, every now and then, I think the bishops of my church, you know, would rather not have me speak because I, I, I am often critical of my own churches. I think we need mm. to be critical in love. 
but mm. but there are some things that 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 come out of this. So this particular phrase is a phrase that John Wesley used. He spoke about the importance of social holiness. However, the interesting thing is, Jeffith, that when he first used this phrase, and he only used it once in his writings, it was in an introduction to a collection of what today we might call choruses or or popular songs. The Wesleys, you know, be, many of these hymns that we sing today, um, we think, oh my goodness, those are so old and boring. But actually what the Wesleys did, Charles Wesley, the brother of John, was very good, was he would take the tunes of pub songs. So people already knew them. And he would add Christian words to them. And this was important in a culture that was only marginally literate. It was one yeah. way of teaching people the scriptures, of, yeah. of sharing theology with them. So in this phrase, this phrase he uses in an introduction to a book of, of hymns, of choruses, and he makes the point that you cannot just sing these hymns in private. You, mm. need, to, you need to sing them together with the person who's in prison, with mm. the person who is unclothed and naked, with the person who is you know, facing hardship, because it's only when you can, when you can confess this with integrity in the presence of the person mm. who needs your help, that you can find social holiness. So the concept of social justice is a very modern concept. I mean, it only comes into, into our usage in language in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And I think people often sort of just collapse the two into one another and say, you see, John Wesley was talking about social justice well, social, social justice didn't exist when yeah. he was alive. But, for example, John Wesley was one of the persons who worked for the abolition of slavery. Um, he refused to drink tea and sugar because, you know, the tea was harvested in ways which was unjust and unethical. The sugar was brought in in ways which was unjust and unethical. As I mentioned, he started the trade union movements. He was the first one to say, okay, if we've got a 1,000 Methodists working in um, in a in a in a sawmill, and they're not paying you enough to live. Stop working, and when the sawmill shuts down, uh, let's negotiate with them to get a living wage, and then you know that will bless them and it will bless us. So so he he had this very interesting notion to say, we have to do everything that we can in order to achieve the aims of the kingdom of God so that the God who is king can be honored by how we live. And that's social holiness. Part of me is like, oh. I'm blown away. <laughs> yeah, because we don't, we don't learn this, right? Yeah. I mean, where would we? Um, especially, you know, in, in the settings that we grew up, it uh, was more heavy on the other side of charismaticism. <laughs> But Marcus, just to say that this, this is another thing that I often just have to remind myself of and my family of and friends and particularly my colleagues in the university is to say we, we actually we need that tension. You know, John Wesley also said, he said that this is one of the most famous quotes of John Wesley, which is often used. You can Google it. You'll find it used millions of times. John Wesley said, my fear is not that the people called Methodists would ever cease to exist. My fear is, however that they would become a lifeless sect devoid of the spirit. And I think that's the thing that we need to hold on to, personal holiness and social holiness. Yeah. It's not a binary. It's not mm -hmm. either or. And, and so I see, unfortunately, in many contemporary Christian movements that, that they give up on personal holiness. 
They, mm. they stop worshipping together. They no longer have personal devotions, personal growth in Christ. They no longer connect their personal convictions with the spiritual life of the community and the well-being mm. of society. So I think we need both of those, yeah. you know. Some of us are heavy on the justice. Others are heavy on the spirit. Let's get together. That's yeah. that's the best uh, mix we, we need. So good. I think that that is the unity we need more than than everyone do the same thing is to recognize in the other that there are parts that we don't see. That's a really timely reminder for myself. I, I think one of the things that really also drew me to want to have a conversation with you has been, it's I think it's something, again, very controversial in the church, uh, but it has to do with the LGBTQ faith community. You know, as we're talking about personal holiness and social holiness and and also who we are, how we find meaning together and all of that. Can you share a bit with me about your understanding or your stance or, or you know, like uh, your insight into this particular topic within faith and, and church? This is a very, very important question for us to spend a little bit of time on. And just to say, I can make available to you um, a chapter that I wrote maybe 15 or 10 years ago that deals with, with the issue of persons with the same-sex orientation, so LGBTQI plus persons in relation to the scriptures and, and our faith. So I'll make that available, and, and if anyone's interested, yes. they can just download the PDF okay. and read it. Thank you. Yeah. But just firstly to say, I think that this is one of those issues in which someone who has the kind of training that I have, have been privileged to have um, can see through some of the gaslighting, some of the, the sort of masking of what is going on. So, so what do I mean by that? Well, let me say, first of all, the rising of the prominence of this as a culture war in Christianity is a very, very modern phenomenon. And so if you study the history of Christianity and you see why did this very suddenly enter into prominence, so much so that it divides uh, churches, that it separates families, that it, it causes people to commit suicide. Why did that happen? We have to recognize it's because of a shift in culture. It's a historical shift in culture, which has now caused persons to, to ask questions about their own sexuality, but also about the sexuality of others. And we have to be honest about that, because I think many many Christians are disingenuous about that. They say mm. the Bible says, when in actual yeah. fact, the primary influence that causes persons to, to, to get into conflict around uh, this issue is actually cultural. Okay, so that's the first thing. The second thing is also when we read the scriptures, the Christian scriptures, we have to be exceptionally careful that we don't put words in God's mouth. So I remember many years ago, about 20 years ago, I was the dean of a, of a Methodist seminary and our, our students had to preach in chapel every Tuesday, trial sermons. Can you imagine anything more daunting <laughs> than that? All your professors are sitting there and you have to preach. And I would listen to the students preach the most horrendous sermons. <laughs> and then at the end of their sermon, they would, you know, like Methodists do, they'd raise their hands and say, this is the word of God. And it was almost like I could see God ducking and saying, please, don't pin that on me. <laughs> you know? Now, I think very often what happens is when we read the scriptures, we, we read them uncritically. Now, I'll just give you a little example of this. Um, I was working with a group of, of um, students, in, in Methodist students, once around this issue and asked them, okay, do you think 
it is acceptable for Christians to, to accept homosexual males in the mm. church. And there was, you know, it was a predominantly older rural black group of, of, of uh, conservative uh, Christians. And they said, no way. So I said, well, well, why not? And they said, well, the Bible says. I said, do you think it is more acceptable to God for, for men to have sex with one another than it is for, for women to have sex with one another? Which of these two do you think is, is, is more of an abomination? And they all said, no, it's men, you know. And I said to them, can you see that what's happening here mm. is because you are heterosexual males, you find that unthinkable for yourself. So you read that into the text. You read this thing into the text and you say, this is what God says. So we've got to be careful about that. Mm -hmm. Okay, let me come to the point of it now to say there are six what we call shooter texts in the Bible that people use to wound uh, on this issue. And the interesting thing is that there is only one of those texts that deals with homosexuality, only one mm -hmm. of them. The other five deal with other things like temple prostitution, the enslavement of, of young boys. So they're not dealing with persons who have a same-sex orientation who are entering into relationships with one another. Only one text does that. That's a text from Leviticus. And what that text says is this. It says, it, it is an abomination to the Lord that a man should lie with another man as with a woman. If such a man is found, he should be taken to the gates of the city and stoned to death. It's unequivocal and clear. Marcus, here's the question. Japheth, here's the question I want to ask you. Number one, where are the gates of your city? Number two, who of you are willing to stone someone to death for a same-sex orientation? Now, of course, as Christians, we say, well, Dion, you can't expect that from us. You know, we, we interpret that. You know, we no longer go to the gates of the city. We, we, we interpret it slightly differently. Of course, we're not going to stone someone to death anymore. That's barbaric. Yeah. And then my question is, but if you are willing to interpret the second part of the text, why is it that you're not willing to interpret the first part of the text? That's hypocrisy. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can't say that this bit can be finessed, but that bit can't. We, yeah. we have to deal with the Bible on an equal footing. We have to do it responsibly. We have to engage it with the same kind of rigor and care that we would throughout. Mm. And so this is a very, very important thing, I think, that we need to note. Okay, let me say one last thing. The final thing that I want to say is that we also need to recognize that there are women and men and there are persons with an intersex identity who love Jesus desperately. I know many, of them, many, many, many of them. They love Jesus desperately. You know, when we engage with these persons, we very quickly come to find out that just like for Marcus and for Japheth and for Dion, I cannot make sense of my faith without bringing all of who I am under the Lordship of Christ and into the presence of Jesus. I cannot deny who I am and think that, that somehow I would be fulfilled in Christ. Every part of who I am has to be submitted to the mm. loving lordship of Christ. Now, the same goes for our sisters and brothers and, and intersex friends who have a sexual orientation or gender identity that's different from ours. We know that these persons exist, that they love the Lord. Mm. And the question is, how will Jesus deal with them? So one of the things that I've tried to do in my church is to say, you know, we need to be exceptionally careful that we don't take the place of the Lord mm. in the church. 
And one of the ways in which I've explained this is to say, you know, the communion table is very different from the coffee table. You know, if I go out to a coffee shop, I decide where I sit at the table. I decide at which table I'm going to sit. I can decide who sits with me and who doesn't sit with me. Mm. I am the one who's in charge. But at the table of the Lord, Jesus is the host. Mm. And Jesus calls people to that table. My responsibility is not to say you can't sit here. I mean, that would be me usurping the host's responsibility. My mm. responsibility is to ethically work out how do I love those whom the Lord has lovingly invited mm. to his table? How do I figure that out? How do I adopt the same attitude as my Lord in loving those persons at this table? And I think that's the big ethical question that, that we have to deal with as the church. That is, that is so much to, to think and unpack of. Um, yeah, I'm going to be chewing on that one for a while. Marcus, if I, if I can make one recommendation to our yeah. listeners and, and to yourselves, and that's Please. to say... Um, Whenever one is going to think very deeply about any issue of this level of importance, mm. um, please try never to do it without having someone from that community present. Yeah. Mm. So during the apartheid years in South Africa, um, the government often used to make proclamations about what was right and just and true for, for South Africans. And we came up with a little slogan. We said nothing about us without us nothing about us without us don't mm -hmm. make decisions on our behalf don't speak on our behalf let us give voice to ourselves to what mm -hmm. we see and i think this is very important when you come to sit with someone I'll, I'll tell you just one tiny little story i've been involved with a group called the triangle project um, and a ministry called i am mm -hmm. um, here in south africa and i remember once sitting in a meeting where a person who who was sharing in, in, in the meeting, um, shared their story and said, you know, I was born with both sets of sexual organs, mm. male and female. Mm. And when the, the doctors saw this, they had to make a decision. And so they consulted with my parents and they figured out what was surgically, medically, surgically, the easiest and, and less risky operation to perform. And so I ended up being a man. That mm. was the decision that they made. But the reality is everything in me is a woman. Mm. I just happen to be born with both sets of sexual organs. The question is now, if this arbitrary medical choice was made by a doctor, does that mean that this person who is a woman in every single way except for their sexual organs is sinning if they're attracted to a man? I mean, mm. can, can you see how Somehow we've lost touch with, with the complexity of the humanity of persons and the grace of Jesus to deal with that brokenness. We've made it a very binary issue. Yeah. And just to say, science teaches us. I mean, there's a scale called the Kinsey scale. All of us occupy different positions on that scale. The, the research shows that only 2% of persons are at the extremes. Only 2% of persons. So, so two out of every 100 persons are completely completely attracted to the opposite sex and 2% are completely attracted to the same sex. The other 96% of us are somewhere on that scale. I'm a heterosexual male, but I can look at another man and say, well, you know, that guy's, he looks good. He's, he's muscular or he's wearing clothes that suit him. The difference is I'm on the scale somewhere where that in, in my biological makeup doesn't turn to a sexual 
thought, but I can still recognize that. Now, someone else may be a little bit further along that scale. And the question is, you know, what do we do with that? So just to say the final thing that, that I encourage Christians to do is I say, be very careful that we don't set up a homosexual ethic and a heterosexual ethic. Mm. What we should have is a sexual ethic. We should say, what does God desire for us to do in order to honor God with our lives and our bodies? And, and that sexual ethic should apply to everybody. We shouldn't be hypocritical and say one for this group, one for that mm. group. You know, I, what I'm also hearing is it's, I think it's part of a larger thing where we, when we talk about how the human brain craves certainty, because of that, we get very lazy in the gray areas and afraid of ambiguity and we avoid it, you know, mm -hmm. right? Because we, we run after the black and white and what we think is, is certain. And then we say, well, intersex people, they're the exception. But if we read the story of Jesus leaving the 99 behind to go after the one, nothing else in that moment matters except that who is in front of us, who the person in front of us, right? Yeah, and Marcus, just to say, I think that's a very important thing. You know, in some senses, that's that's the work of a of a professional theologian, an academic yeah. theologian, is is to help us to become aware of the things that we've become lazy about. So heteronormativity—that's the sort of phrase for this in the church can be exceptionally destructive when somehow we think we've come to deal with other forms of normative injustice. So for example, whiteness, we, we recognize that in whitening spaces, persons of other race groups find themselves being minimized, disregarded, silenced. Uh, so we, we've become aware of that. We've dealt with issues, you know, like patriarchy, in the yeah. church, we're thinking about this very much. How does the centering of the male identity, the male voice, the male experience, the male perspective on life, how does that silence our sisters, our mothers, our daughters? Yeah. But we've also got to be careful that we don't center our sexual preference. And that's that was what was part yeah. of that story that I was speaking about earlier. You yeah. know, it's no doubt that for the majority of people, we are heterosexual. Our primary form of sexual attraction is to someone of the opposite sex. But just because that's normal for me, it doesn't mean that it should be normal for everybody. And we have to be careful of that because the moment that we, that we give our normativity, our heteronormativity, or in my case, my whiteness, my maleness, the moment I give it a theological backing, that yeah. I say, this is the thing that God prefers. Yeah. Oh, goodness, yeah. that is dangerous. Because then I'm pinning something on a loving, gracious, inclusive, life-giving God that that God is saying, oh, goodness, can you see what damage you're doing to my, to my children? Can you see how your blindness is excluding and breaking and harming and hurting? Mm -hmm. So we've got to be very careful of that, I think. Yeah. Wow. Jifith, do you have any other questions or thoughts that no, I think this is so good. I think I've not heard someone, you know, um, just talk about these things at this level. So I really appreciate it. Yeah, how can, um, how can, so we'll put the chapter up um, on the website, uh, mm. as, on this episode's website, on this episode's page for people to download. Um, but how can people get access to 
your books or to your writings, you have a blog, I, I believe, right? And uh, yeah, yeah. So long form blog. Remember those days when people used to write lots of <laughs> words about things. I have one of those, DionFoster.com, uh, yeah. okay. and uh, you can find the the strange spelling of both my name and surname. I'm sure in the show notes. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, I mean, I'm on Twitter at Digital Dion. And uh, I have a, a podcast and a YouTube vlog where I post videos. So all of that is, is linked from, from DionFoster.com. So, uh, and it'd be lovely to connect with, with uh, Malaysian friends. So drop me a note if you hear this. I'd love to hear from you. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, we will definitely have you, um, if you will have us, <laughs> to have a conversation with you. It'll yeah. be a joy. I really appreciate this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks, Jeffith and Marcus. It, it's been such a blessing to talk with you today and, and to both of you. Bless you in this. And uh, thanks, thanks for being willing to, you know, to have some of these courageous conversations. I, I, mm. It speaks to me of a deep commitment to Christ and a deep love for, for what God is doing in the world. And it's been a joy to, to talk with you today. Mm. Thank you. Thank you.